Here is a box, a musical box, wound up and ready to play. Can you guess what is in it today? Hello, I'm Bill Lawrence, and welcome to Box 39. This is Tristan da Cunha, the world's most remote inhabited island. A British outpost in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean, roughly halfway between Buenos Aires in Argentina and Cape Town in South Africa. There is no airport. There is no deep harbour. To reach the island, you must hitch a lift with one of only nine passages scheduled annually from Cape Town. It could be a research vessel or a supply ship. But it won't be a boat chartered for tourists. Time at sea to reach Tristan de Cunha is seven days. The island, essentially a six and a half thousand foot high volcanic cone, is given shape by the vast negative space of sea all around it. With a population currently around 235, everyone descended from just seven families this is a truly remarkable place, inhabited by truly remarkable people. This is not a place where life in all its normal areas, work, play, business, love and death, are normal. This is unique, beautiful, shocking and strangely very British. This is Box 39 and this is Tristan da Cunha, the island at the end of the world. I am alone 
gazing from my window to the streets below on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow I am a rock I am a on arguably the most far-flung inhabited island on Earth. And this is the Albatross, a pub that wouldn't seem out of place at an English tennis club or at a holiday park in Devon. South African beers are being served. There's a country and western ballad playing on the jukebox. And local fishermen are enjoying enough beers for them to carouse heartily and without fear of offence. An English Premier League football game is flickering on a TV set in the corner. There's even a large jar of pickled eggs on the shelf behind the till. Handwritten notes list fresh snacks available to customers. This is one of the planet's remotest places, and it's a scene resembling one found in clubs and bars across the shires and coastal resorts of England. But there is a distinction. Here at the Albatross, the only pub for nearly 2,000 miles, you can get hammered, so drunk that you fall down on your way home, and somebody will pick you up. You don't have to worry about being mugged, or about anything really. 
just dealing with the next day hangover, perhaps. Boats approach Tristan de Kuna from the northwest side of the island. It's here that there is the only proper settlement, known as Edinburgh, or officially, Edinburgh of the Seven Seas. The centre of the island, almost all of the island, is a volcano, and everything is dominated by the volcano's towering flanks. Edinburgh, the settlement, is made up of a cluster of low-slung structures with red and blue tin roofs situated on the plain, a narrow grass plateau overlooking the ocean. This human settlement, with its 235 full-time residents, seems almost improbable, a community afloat in the huge emptiness of the South Atlantic Ocean. The lobby of the one shop on the island displays hand-knit wool sweaters, postcards of seabirds and commemorative postage stamps depicting such island traditions as potato planting, sheep shearing and giving out the mail. Though apparently for 18 years in the early 20th century, the mail, which included regular messages from the British government, was just never opened by the islanders, let alone replied to. The obvious activity is to hike the peak. This takes at least six hours and there is a requirement for visitors to go with two guides. Other excursions can be arranged on an ad hoc basis. Among them are a fishing trip and a bird watching outing to the nearby Isle of Nightingale, home to rockhopper penguins and the endemic Tristan albatross. Nightingale Island is another much smaller active volcano in the South Atlantic Ocean, just three square kilometres in area, uninhabited and with large amounts of kelp surrounding the island, which makes it difficult for ships to anchor in bad weather. The other nearby island is named Inaccessible, for good reason. I'm starting to feel quite shocked at the immensity of life's challenges at Tristan de Kuna. There is famously a nine-hole golf course on Tristan, where hazards include chicken coops and gale force winds that have been known to destroy large ships. Tristanians don't really play golf. The course was built by a homesick British administrator and like much of ordinary and extraordinary life, everything on Tristan de Kuna depends on the weather.
Amazon awaited at Tilbury some very special passengers, a party of 63, homeward bound for Tristan da Cunha. They're the first body of islanders who have decided to go back. Tristan was completely evacuated in 61, when the erupting volcano made it untenable. Last August, six men went back to see if it could be made habitable again. They said it could, and after weighing the pros and cons, the first batch are leading the return home. A priest gave them his blessing. To go back was a big decision, but only a handful voted to remain in England. Their headman, Willie Repetto, said it was wonderful to be going home. Good luck was wished by Colonial Undersecretary Nigel Fisher. The main body, about 200, will return next October. Newlywed Peter and Pat Repetto have some regrets at leaving England, but none of them thought much of the Russian tear of life here. And after their small island in the South Atlantic, it's not to be wondered at. The island's only road is a two-mile long ribbon of gravel and broken pavement. The pastoral tableau of mountain and ocean evokes a blend of Scotland and Californian Big Sur. Past the golf course and just beyond it is Hottentotch Gulch, named after African soldiers who pitched their tents here in 1816, part of a British garrison that was dispatched to ward off American privateers and any Frenchman bent on using Tristan as a staging post to rescue France's exiled Emperor Napoleon, who was imprisoned nearly 1,500 miles to the north on another British overseas territory, St Helena Island. The map names here tell a strong story. There are cows grazing beside Jenny's stream, where a widow once dwelled. Then nearby you find Knock Folly Ridge, Bugsby Hole, and an eroded sea cliff called Hillpiece. Further round the coast is Ridge Where the Goat Jump Off and Pig Bite, landmarks commemorating notable local events. History on the doorstep, remote island style. The road peters out at a mosaic of stone-walled plots overlooking the ocean, an area known as the Patches. Scattered about the farming plots here are small and low wooden cabins. During Christmas, almost all Tristanians pack up and travel together all of the two miles from the settlement at Edinburgh to enjoy a week-long holiday here. Tristan's potato patches are a series of rectilinear walled fields, normally without gates, where potatoes and other vegetables have been grown for over 150 years. The tiny fields offer shelter from gale-force winds on this exposed part of the island. Every island family owns and cultivates several patches and all help to plant, tend and harvest crops. There are dozens of buildings, small wooden huts that store tools and seed potatoes. 
rats can be a nuisance, so the hugely valuable seed potatoes will be carried back to more secure storage where possible, and also there are an eclectic and disorganised array of camping huts, providing beds, stoves, chairs and tables for weekends away from the main settlement. Every family on Tristan continues to work these potato patches which dominate the north end of the horizontal plain that stretches from the volcano to the sea. There are few family names on Tristan de Kuna. The most common name is Green, which accounts for nearly 10% of the islanders. Others, which reflect the original and occasional settlers in Tristan's history, are Glass, Swain, Ripetto and Rogers. Like their predecessors for so many generations, pitchforks are used to dig the shallow rows. Then the spuds from 21st century plastic buckets are laid in these rows along with fertilizer pellets. Some lay crushed lobster shells and sheep's wool over their potatoes. Potatoes are the insurance of Tristan de Kuna. If suddenly the world went crazy and money had no value, Tristan would still have its staple vegetable. It's eaten daily, boiled, baked, mashed, sometimes stuffed into a lamb shoulder and roasted, or made into snizzlins, fried potato dough sewed with jams and raisins to make a sweet pudding. Tristan de Kuna does never tire of potatoes. One very notable thing about Tristan de Kuna is that there is always enough potatoes. Love was gone 
1961, the volcano on Tristan da Cunha erupted. A traumatic experience that was to change the islanders' lives forever. Just a few months later, and evacuated to England, islander Mary Swain remembered what happened. So all night through we hear bombs and boulders and boulders coming down. I thought half the mountain was coming. Fred, I say, Fred, jump up quick, I say, the earth is opening. I said, jump up quick, the earth is opening. So we would jump out of bed and rush to the where we keep potatoes and got up his trade bag and came in. When he came in, I was stuffing a whole lot of rubbish, as I thought, into this sack and saying to myself, this is nonsense. Taking all this stuff with me, I said, just might as well leave it because I can't carry it. Get the donkeys and go for the patches. So we just had to put on what we could on the donkeys and carry what we could. I know what I had on my back. I had a rifle, a big overcoat, and a lamp. When we got to the hut of the potato patches, we all cuddled together like sardines in a tin. Wasn't sardines, that's the truth. In a tin. Cold, miserable, no drink, no supper, no nothing. Well, we got on, they got on the beach, and when we came round to where we could see round Hottentot Point, all we could see was lava and hot stones and smoke going up. I don't know how far, well, we say, as the end of our island.
When the British military left Tristan in 1817, the attempt to rescue Napoleon having never materialised, a Scottish corporal William Glass and two English stonemasons stayed behind. They built homes and boats from salvaged driftwood, then drafted a constitution decreeing a new community based on equality and cooperation. The collective spirit that sustained the island during years of almost complete isolation still exists. Nearly every Tristanian descends from a settler who washed ashore. Life expectancy is significantly higher than in the UK. Maybe it's because life here doesn't have the same potential for accidents or stress. Life can move ever so slowly. A hundred years ago, islanders would row out into the ocean to wave down passing ships and barter for supplies. This could be dangerous, of course, but life depended on cattle and sheep and fishing. Not steeped in luxury, but not steeped in unknown possibilities, in grinding failures and the countless pressures to succeed. Certainty and tradition are manifest and plenty. Island traditions still exist and there is no doubt as to their necessity and importance in the annual pilgrimage of life on Tristan. There's Old Year's Night, a year-end celebration when men dress in masks and scare the women. There's Ratting Day, a pest control competition. But even here on Tristan, tradition is not what it was. Hapling Day, an annual outing to fetch potatoes from a now defunct orchard, no longer takes place. In 1961, boulders suddenly began tumbling down Queen Mary's Peak and the ground split just beyond the plain at Edinburgh. For the first time, islanders learnt that their mountain was an active volcano. Its eruptions on October the 8th, 1961, caused the British government to evacuate all Tristanians to Southampton for two years, where they quickly became media sensations and were subjected to all manner of medical tests. But nearly everybody wanted to return to their own island. They preferred a curved paved road with no signs, traffic lights, post boxes, white or yellow lines or even house numbers to the bustling city centre and suburban streets they found in Britain. Today, islanders still grow their own crops of potatoes, vegetables and salad items. They rear their own stock to produce their beef, mutton, milk and eggs from hens and ducks. They rely on the supermarket not for great choices of foods and goods from all corners of the globe, but to obtain a very small range of other foodstuffs, flour, sugar, frozen bread and a limited range of groceries that would be typically found in a UK or South African supermarket. Think your local double-tilled co-op, not a megastore Tesco's. Tristan's Island Store or supermarket doesn't have plate glass windows or carry advertising. Instead, it reflects what is increasingly obvious. Reassurance, calmness, certainty and peace.
This is Box 39 on Cone Radio 106.6 FM. And this is our special show about the island of Tristan de Cunha, a remote and remarkable British overseas territory in the South Atlantic Ocean. For Tristanians, a great day means a fishing day. So if indicators look good in the faint light before dawn, someone will hammer on an empty propane canister next to Prince Philip Hall, and this is the alert that it's fishing time. Lights flick on inside houses as the settlement stirs. Soon men stream down to the harbour with bright plastic waterproofs slung over their shoulders and lunch pails in hand. In pairs, they board fishing boats loaded with lobster traps. The women will process the bounty in a factory beside the harbour. Whole lobsters for Japan, tails for the US. Of course, they keep some. The fishermen will stay out on the water for hours, hooking a bit of squid onto lines as bait. Hopefully, each man will accumulate a respectable bucket of fish known as five fingers. Facing the island as they sail home, they're met with an abundance of nature. A lush landscape of mosses, ferns and nesting yellow-nosed albatrosses halfway up the mountain. Down on the plain, their houses, made of wood, are susceptible to fires with an abundance of gas cylinders necessary to heat their homes. In an emergency, there is a metal gong which is hit continually to alert the island. Luckily, the island was never struck by Covid and they are awaiting the return of more ships to boost their tourism again. When it comes to school, the pupils are often in very small classes. There are five students in one class, just a single student in another year group, a mere 19 students in the entire school. The classes run up to GCSE, and if children want to continue their formal education, they often go to Cape Town or to the UK. One modern dilemma for Tristan is maintaining their numbers. With an ageing population, the island needs to keep its youngsters, but it can be very boring for them. But what exactly is it that any islander would want elsewhere? Modern technology. Gadgets, perhaps. The opportunity to drive in a car, travel on a train. But that means traffic jams, polluted air, the tyranny of timetables, the slavery of survival, the unceasing struggles against our everyday miseries of housing shortage, rental rip-offs, crime, violence, the lies of politicians, the frustrations of competition, and the never-ending sense of treading water in your mind, the building blocks of our own lives, perhaps. Tristan de Kuna, for reasons beyond choice, does not include these prisons of time and mind. Tristan de Kuna is free.
In 1957, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, visited Tristan de Cunha. Here, islanders remember what some consider to have been the single most important social event in the island's history. First, from Trina Repetto. 
he came ashore at Big Beach where the factory was down there and they had a, a archway, a lovely archway make with all flowers. Later on he had a talk with the priests and all things like that, and the scouts and whatever it was around. And then they asked him, would they like a dance? There was not a dance, but jazz music, but accordion music, he said. And so he went up the hall and they had shown him how to do the dances. I had my further take with him, because I was in school, I was only 17, and I was frightened and I ran away to daddy, come look for me, because <laughs> I wasn't brave. And, but when you talk to him, he's like me talking to you, you know, he's just down to earth. And he was a lovely man, you know. And this from Eric Blass. Arriving on the 12th of January, 1957, then after that time, we had a, a party at this old school place where the children used to went to school. They had a dance there, and they had a pillar dance. And after that, he, nothing much he tell you, he left and went back on the Royal Yacht Britannia and sailed for wherever he was going. Up until the latter part of the 20th century, the form of social organisation on the island was anarchy and had been for over 150 years. There was no government, no police, no money, no head man or woman. The principles of freedom and anarchy were firmly established in the Tristan community as a social order based on the voluntary consensus of free men and women. In such a community, not only is authority and control or any kind of informal or formal government considered unnecessary and undesirable, but it's felt to be a menace and a threat to individual rights. The inhabitants of Tristan were not a self-selected commune who had gone there to establish utopia. They were of all races and survivors of shipwrecks or ex-whalers who had washed up there. That anarchy became their natural form of social organisation and persisted against all efforts of the British government to undermine it is all the more remarkable. Andrea Ripetto, an Italian who had been shipwrecked on Tristan in 1892, was one of the few Tristans who could read or write. Seizing their chance, the British government addressed all communications to Andrea Ripetto, headman or occasionally governor. For 20 years, they never received any reply until the mail was discovered unopened. It was recently reported there had never been any crime or fistfight in living memory. The Tristanians were not anarchists who'd read their revolutionary anarchist political tracts. Instead, they found anarchy to be the natural form of social organisation. They would never have used the word themselves, though. It's a remarkable utopia. 
the original settlers drew up a common land contract known as the Original Agreement, which said that all land was to be held in common, as were livestock, fish catches and barter from passing ships. All were to be considered equal and none above any other. This is the document that allowed the development of a society based on the equality of a sturdy and robust individualism wary of any attempt by one person to put themselves above any other. By 1900, the inhabitants were not self-selecting members of an idealistic commune drawn by stories of an utopia on sea. The outside world knew virtually nothing of the island. The people who settled on the island were rough and tough individuals, mainly from shipwrecks and whaleboat crews, and six women from St Helena who answered a desperate plea from the Tristan men for wives. But the outside world knew nothing of the anarchy on Tristan. Few boats called. Often the island was without visitors for five or six years, and during the First World War, not one boat called at all. This was the utopia that worked, the Lord of the Flies gone right. On a desert island, here I think of the only soft and sweet. Got no shirt or shoes upon my feet. Out in the middle of an ocean Doing my thing I'm happy it's just a dream and thing I'm living like a marabou king Out on a desert island About my feet, and a breeze blowing soft upon the cold grass blade lays old melodies cool and sweet. As the sun goes sinking in a painted sky, my eyes on a pool of light. Where the stars cast a twinkling veil on high Where I sleep out every night One morning the silence broke As beset by a sea high horned and wave I woke Find no remnants of that paradise What laid about me Boy, it changed Unfriendly land From beyond the compass reach I sing the song of water and doom Wonder strange Out of the gloom There came a sound like crying in the night My blue eyes I thought lies a woman dragging up 
out of that squalling tide. On a desert eye. Christmas is hardly in the news yet, but at the London GPO, the mails are being prepared for Tristan da Cunha, the loneliest island in the British Empire, if not in the world. This time, there's special interest in the fact that the mails are being carried by the three-masted bark Cap Pilar, just setting out from London's East India Dock on a voyage round the world. It's over a year since the ship last called at Tristan da Cunha, so for that time, the island has been completely cut off from the outside world. When the mails are aboard, the Cap Pilar hoists the Royal Mail Pennant, a unique sight in these days of steam. And then she starts on her voyage to the island which is 2,000 miles from the nearest point of civilization. So it's farewell to the Cap Pilar. May she have fair weather and a following wind. And may she reach Tristan da Cunha in time to bring Christmas wishes from the home country. This is Box 39 on Cone Radio 106.6 FM. And this is our special show about the island of Tristan da Cunha, a remote and remarkable British overseas territory in the South Atlantic Ocean. Throughout the period from initial settlement in 1816, until the end of the Second World War in 1945, there was no form of authority on Tristan. No governor, no administrator, no external authority, no police, no crime, no fights, no money, no commodity relationships on the island. Yet, Tristan de Cunha was no communist society. It was based on respect for sturdy individualism, not community effort. When missionaries arrived, they found disinterest in building community facilities like churches and schools. When an individual required help from neighbours, as in thatching a roof, such help would be forthcoming on the basis of a mutual obligation. Such obligation persisted within families often for generations until the obligation was repaid. However, when a communal effort was required for each individual's good, fishing, rowing out to barter with boats, then the necessary communal effort was forthcoming and fish and barter were shared out equally. A reef prevented boats from landing on the island, so the Tristanians had built their own longboats which enabled them to ride the surf and row miles out to sea to barter with passing boats. The Tristanians would trade livestock, potatoes, eggs, fish and later model boats for whatever a curious ship's company had to offer. Until 1940, there was never any doctor or nurse on the island and the average life expectancy was 69 years in the 1880s, much higher than in Victorian Britain. A South African dental team visited in 1927 on a research project. How many times did they brush their teeth, they were asked. When no replies were forthcoming, they imitated a brushing motion with their hands. Laughter followed because they never brushed their teeth. 
and on inspection, only one case of dental decay could be found. The only case of cancer was that of founder William Glass, and the islanders remained remarkably fit, active, long-lived, and free from many contagious diseases. After the Second World War, the British government installed an administrator, a policeman, and wage labour in the form of a South African fish canning factory for the prize Tristan Crayfish. Her Majesty's government also started to coin it in from Tristan postage stamps, a move which showed up the contradictions in the change from self-sufficiency to a currency-based economy. The famed Tristan potato stamp. The problem with the four-pence stamp the government issued was that since no one on Tristan used money, they were the only people who could not buy the stamps were the Tristanians. So the four-potato stamp was introduced with dual currency of potatoes and pence, allowing the Tristanians to buy the stamp for four potatoes. Throughout the 1940s and 1950s, life on Tristan continued, with the administrator thinking he was the administrator and the islanders treating him with disinterest. When in 1961 the volcano erupted and the entire population was evacuated to England, they were not impressed with civilization, its consumer goods, its shallow values, its hierarchy and authority, its differentiation through wealth, its money, its time, its purposeless work, its crime and violence, its illness, its glamour and its affluence. One and a two and a three. On a desert island the magic cures in my land Every day's a holiday with you Under a blue sky, dear We could get an idea Of what our two lips were meant to do Strolling beside you Hand in hand we'll go Through love's promised land, dear So would be hours if for only three hours on a desert island in my dream. to Tristan de Kuna and the obvious measure of what it is like is to note what life there doesn't have rather than what it does. 
There's no planes and trains, there's no cars and restaurants, no shopping malls, and there's only a tiny fraction of the noises. But isn't that too easy, too simplistic? Indeed, it's possible that Tristan de Kuna is actually the place that has everything. Peace, harmony, equality, friendship. No loneliness, no disappointment, no waste, no danger. Life is predictable and honest and full of hope. Maybe we all need to find our own Tristan de Kuna, our own piece of South Atlantic love and anarchy. I'm Bill Lawrence, and this has been our Box 39 investigation of Tristan de Kuna. Be seeing you.
together all about me And my ship be torn apart on the sea I shall smell again the fragrance of these islands And the heaving waves that brought me once to thee And should I return safe home again to England I shall watch the English mist roll through the day is a guppy production for Cone Radio and is committed to a varied, equitable and truly inclusive output that properly reflects the ethnic diversity of our community audience. <laughs>